Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high-income earners come to learn wealth-building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth-building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into the Money Insights Podcast, where we talk all things money and business. My name is Christian Allen. And I'm here with my co-host, and the reason that anyone tunes into this show, you know him, is Rodney the Pods of Risky. What's up, man? Hey, I'm doing great. And fall is upon us. You know what that means? It means college football. It does mean college football. you going to say? Yeah. I was going to say football generally, because maybe oh, not okay. everybody is just a college guy like me. But, That's uh, true. You know, NFL. But it's all, football in general. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm excited about football. Um, I don't follow it nearly as closely as I used to, Rod. I've become like obsessed with this whole like business building thing, and it kind of mm-hmm. gets in the way of my sports fandom at times. Um, but I do try to check in, and and you know, my brother uh, runs a fantasy league, and I've been in it for like ten years, and I even won it a couple times early, but I've been a I've just been bad lately. So it's darn injuries those injuries you know what the problem is i keep getting like the first or second pick and then i pick the guy he goes out like first or second week yeah 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 exactly unbelievable okay that's not why people are tuning in for this though (laughs) so let's talk about our episode today we're going to talk about by request and by request from our very own blake brogan yes by request we're going to do the uh deep dive on the investment optimizer but we're doing the 2.0 version so investment optimizer, deep dive 2.0. Okay. So what does that mean? It means that we're probably going to take a few different angles on some of the topics that we hit on last time. There'll probably be a fair amount of overlap in some of the information. And yet we definitely have at least a couple of new and interesting topics that we want to hit on. Absolutely. So that's our cliffhanger. That said, Rod, why the heck does the investment optimizer even exist? That's our starting point. Yeah, it's a great question. And the answer is that... I thought you were just going to leave us there. Okay, you, <laughs> you do have an answer. I do, yes. Okay, good. Uh, okay, so we meet up with a lot of people who are investors. We talk about the alternative investment space, real estate, businesses, crypto, all kinds of different things. And typically what they'll do is they'll uh, they'll build up their... We call it the opportunity fund, right? They'll build it up inside of a savings account. They'll take that money, go and invest it. And then that creates some sort of return, cash flow, you know, some, some way that money comes back to them. And they'll flow that all back into their savings account, build it back up and go out and invest in something else. So they have mm-hmm. this cycle of money moving through their bank account. And why the bank account? Because of the liquidity, right? They need the money when it's when as soon as the opportunity comes along. And secondly, because of the safety. The problem is it doesn't really do anything for them when when it's sitting there. Mm-hmm. They're, they're earning 0.1%. Oh, wait, interest rates went up 0.15%. That's not even lazy money. That's just dead money. Well, especially now with inflation being double digits, right? Yeah, that's a that's a bad financial arbitrage. If you're getting uh, you know, 0. 0.2, 0. 0.15, and ultimately being charged. 10% like that that's yeah. not going to go well for you. that so this is a good lesson right especially right now there is huge value in not having money sitting in a bank account yep yep mm. so now getting back to the investment optimizer what this does is it provides the same safety and liquidity that, that we were looking for with the bank account but it adds growth that's tax free and some other really cool things we'll talk about in terms of arbitrage, ways that we are able to create additional value just because of the way that we flow the money through the plan. Okay, so you've defined the problem. The problem is people don't have a place to put money when they're not invested. Yep. At least not a good place. Not a good one, yeah. Right. Right. So basically the investment optimizer jumps in, takes over that position, allows you to generate a return and we'll talk about how generate a tax-free return that generally will surpass inflation generally is the mm-hmm, key word mm-hmm. there might be uh some points in time where that's going the other way but we'll talk about why that is and how that changes over time but over the long haul it has historically 
strongly outperformed inflation. And that's one of the right. benefits, right? Okay. Yeah. So we're covering this problem that people have. And, and by the way, it's a problem that can cost a lot of money, right? right. It's, and, and it may not feel that way, but it's a lot of money and opportunity cost. Although again, with inflation being as crazy as it is, we're also losing buying power at the same time. And here's another thing that we get feedback from our clients about is that money sitting in the bank, it, it just eats at them, right? It, it makes them anxious to go out and, and invest it somewhere. And so we've had people admit that they probably got into investments. They were too eager to get into something and they maybe jumped on something that, that they otherwise may not have if that money wasn't just sitting there not doing anything and just like just eating at them. And that's no way to live. No, Rob, that is no way to live. <laughs> okay, no, so, so let's. Anyone who knows who has listened to us at all knows that we're a big fan of life insurance, and mm -hmm. this strategy is focused on using dividend-paying whole life insurance. So, Rod, maybe talk about why, right? Like, th this is one of those funny things. It's like it's not like we just think life insurance is super cool, and so we're trying to fit it in here. Yeah. Like it's it's actually the other way around, right? Like we, we found there, there's an issue or a problem or a challenge that needs to be addressed. And it just so happens that life insurance does it in an incredibly effective way. So talk about right. why we use whole life insurance. Yeah. Cause it's a great point. Be and the reason we do is because it is uniquely set up to do the things that we want it to do. In other words, it gives us that same safety and liquidity and but it also creates a way for us to grow that money in the meantime in a very predictable, consistent way. Uh, so to, to begin with, if people are hearing this for the first time, they're like, literally life insurance? Um, let me just point out, and especially whole life, right? I think whole life, um, maybe more than some of the others, gets just a really bad rap uh, out there. And Especially if, you if you're listening to Dave or Susie. Yep. Right? Yep. But our audience does, probably doesn't listen to them all that much. So I think we're okay. Except maybe for entertainment value. Maybe for entertainment. Okay. So but, Robert, we're going to, we're going to get into how this works. Keep going. Yeah. So if you were to go down the street and tell your local agent, Hey, I heard these guys talking about life insurance. Can you do this for me? Chances are they're going to give you something very different than what we're, what we're doing. In other words, it's in the way that it's built the way that it's structured. And specifically in this case, we're building it with the least amount of cost possible to grow the cash value in the best way possible to really make it so you can use it. In other words, we're not trying to put the insurance policy in place of your other investing. You, you keep investing where you are going to and where you are now. What we're doing is just creating a better opportunity fund, a better foundation piece from which to do that investing. Yep. And so the, the key is to have a policy that's built or designed appropriately for this purpose, which just means that we're trying to keep costs as low as possible because we yeah. need cash to grow as strong as we can possibly create the cash. So Rod, maybe talk a little bit about like, what are the characteristics that make yeah. up um, the investment optimizer, the whole life policy, right? And why they, why they basically are plugging that hole, the problem of, you know, not being able to create returns while money's sitting on the sideline. Yeah. Well, so life insurance policy, again, the, because of the way we build it is going to create a consistent 5% net, even net of costs, 5% return. And this is even in this recent decade where interest rates have been very low. Okay. As interest rates so go up, it'll actually create a little better return. Okay, Rod, I want to pontificate a little bit on this return mm -hmm. because I think that it's important for people to understand the historicals and what we can expect kind of in the future. So I always say this, but life insurance cash values are designed to outperform general interest rates. Yeah. Again, people wouldn't put their money there if they didn't do that. So right now we're in a situation where we're talking about paying, you know, getting a 5% net return. And the reason we're talking about that is because that's a real number based on what really happens over the last handful of years. Now, for clarity, if you were to say, if we were doing this exact same uh, concept presentation 10 years ago, we'd probably look at that and say, 
it's six and a half percent or so. Mm -hmm. like, like we could go back and look and what happened is, is interest rates have gone down obviously significantly for years and years until this recent um, uptick. But until that point we had like historically low interest rates. And even then we were able to get this 5% net return. So yeah. that's pretty special, right? If you're, you know, if general interest rates are 1% or lower and you're still out there getting a 5% tax-free return, like that's really significant. Uh, okay. So what am I trying to get at? And we'll talk more about what makes up the way that we generate this return. But I think it's important for just at this point for people to understand that we're using that 5% number based on what's been happening in like the recent, recent history. We will fully expect that if interest rates are staying higher or continue to rise, that number will drastically increase, right? So that number isn't a stagnant number. It doesn't mean five, just because we're saying 5% today, that's what it's going to be in the future. But we'll talk, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. I just thought we're in the deep dive. People should understand how that return, you know, plays out over yeah. the long haul. Yeah, well said. And then I think the next part to point out is we're generating that return inside of these policies. But, and because of some special IRS rules, that growth is all tax free. In other words, when we're accessing it, using it for our investments, uh, we'll talk about later taking money out for retirement. And then ultimately when you pass away and this death benefit pays out, all of that money coming back out is coming back out income tax free. And Rod, especially if you're a high income earner, but really it doesn't matter who you are, yeah. right? The value of that continues to grow. And so as my opportunity fund increases, as I flow money back into it from, from the returns on my investments and that gets larger and larger, that number becomes even more important. In other words, I save more taxes because the, the values are larger. Yeah. And if I was doing the exact same thing outside of it, in other words, a fully taxable account, let's say my savings account, mm -hmm. I'd miss out on significant steps. And again, each way, e each direction, or every time I increase in value and income, that tax ramification becomes even more critical. Absolutely. Okay. And next thing we already talked about kind of the safety of, of it, the, the predictability, but that comes back to the companies that we're using. So we're using life insurance companies that have been around for a long time, 100, 150 years or more. And uh, they're financially strong, A-rated, like all these things. And then the, the maybe the next thing is, is they're mutual companies, hmm. which means that the policyholders themselves are the owners of the company. So when I get set up a policy like this, a whole life policy with a mutual company, when they declare a dividend at the end of the year, I actually get a portion of that. That's kind we'll of nice. more. Yeah, we'll talk more about kind of what that means. But but the the point is that these companies are are strong and and consistent. So uh, one example of a company that we use uh, was founded in 1847. They started paying a dividend in 1849, and they haven't missed a year since then. It fluctuates. Kind That's of pretty the, good. You know, like you talked about a minute ago. But the point is that they're just. They're just very consistent, very predictable. Okay. So, and, and even when you say it fluctuates, it fluctuates, but over a long period of time, it's not like yeah. one year it's 10 and the next year it's two, like yeah. it's very, very consistent. And so the fluctuation happens slowly over time. Right. Yep. But, but the nice thing is, is you know what to expect. You can go in uh, with a really strong idea of what's going to happen inside that, which again, is really important when you consider the the fact that we're using it as an opportunity fund. We need that money there uh, when we want it to be there to invest. Okay, Rod, before we, um, I want to get into a little bit of a debate in a second, but Ooh. before we do that, that's a, that's a cliffhanger. I'm excited. Before we get into our debate, Rod, talk a little bit about maybe a, the couple of last important points that or, or value points that exist with the investment optimizer. Okay. So uh, we talked about the liquidity. What that means is when when I'm ready to, to tap into the money, I can do that. And I could do that as a withdrawal, but that's not what I want to do. That's not the best way to do it. And the reason I say that is because it also comes with a special loan provision, which means because I have money sitting in that account, the insurance company makes available uh, in, in the form of a loan 
cash for me to use. So in this case, what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually take a loan against my cash value. It stays in my account as collateral for the loan, but it continues to grow. And then I've taken that other money from the loan and that's what I've taken out and, and created my investment with. And again, we'll talk about a little more of the specifics, but that becomes a very key component as to why it works, not just because it grows, not just because it has that kind of safety and, and this liquidity, um, but, but this additional arbitrage that we can create because of the way the loan works. Mm. Yeah. And we're going to get into the math. We're actually going to show how the financial arbitrage plays out in a really simple mathematic formula, formula. So it's easy to kind of recognize. Sweet. Um, okay. One oh, last sorry, thing. That. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing, uh, as far as just the life insurance is that it, it, it does have a death benefit and also some other benefits, some long-term care types of riders and things that can come with it. And the reason I bring it up is uh, we talked about earlier, kind of minimizing costs. So the irony of this is that we do actually minimize the amount of insurance on the policy in order to minimize the costs. But the point is it does provide amount of insurance that I don't have to pay for any other way. Yeah. And, and over time, it, you know, especially if I'm going to be a lifelong investor, it can be relatively significant, Absolutely. even doing it exactly the way where we're saying low costs, um, high cash, just because of the fact that the opportunity fund keeps increasing. Therefore the death benefit has to yep. increase with it. Yep. Okay. Rodney, are you ready to get into the debate I was teasing earlier? Yes, I am. I'm excited. <laughs> okay. Let's do it. So we hear a lot of people that come in wanting to know inside of the concept of the investment optimizer, can I also use index universal life? Mm. So that's the question, Rod. And what we find is, as you kind of look out there and, you know, people doing these kinds of, these kinds of strategies, they tend to be really extreme in one way or the other. It's either all whole life or it's all IUL nothing else works. And and let me just be clear, like variable universal life, it kind of like doesn't even get to play in this, on this stage. Yeah. It's really IUL versus whole life, but there's some questions like, can I do one or the other? Why do we prefer? Okay. So let's start with there. Why do we prefer using whole life with the investment optimizer, but maybe with some of our other strategies, we would prefer IUL. Let's start yeah. there. Okay. Let's, uh, let's maybe define a little better how IUL works and is compare, it, it compares to mm -hmm. whole life. Good idea. It is almost, it's the same in most ways. In other words, the, the tax-free growth part of it, the, yep. it's the life liquidity, the, the safe, yep. there, there are guarantees. We're still going to borrow against it. Like all of those mechanisms yes. are the same. So there's, so really there's just a couple of differences, right? Yeah. The, the key differences, well, I'll let you get into them. Yeah. So the biggest thing is the way that it grows. We've talked about the cash value sitting there and, and growing in a very predictable way inside of the whole life. In the IUL, the growth is based off of what's happening in the stock market. Now, just to be clear, your money isn't ever invested in the market. Your money stays in your account with the insurance company. It's not going anywhere. It's not at risk. But the interest that it earns is linked to a market index. So just say the S&P, for example. When the S&P goes up, you earn interest based on how much it grows up to a certain cap. In a year where the in index goes down, you don't participate in the losses. You just don't earn any interest in that year. So there are some people who look at that and say, well, man, I'd maybe I'd rather be in a place where I have the uh, little, little more upside yeah, opportunity I with the market. For right? sure. If I can get potentially 8 or 9% in the year, and do the same things we're talking about? Why wouldn't I do that? Yep. So this goes back to kind of the predictability part of it. Like we really hounded that point with whole life that we like it because of its how predictably it grows. IUL, over a long period of time, we've, we have a lot of confidence that it's going to grow. So, so you asked the question about, well, what, why do we offer it and use it in some of the other strategies and not so much in the investment optimizer? And that's the reason. Given time, I'm not worried about what happens in a single year, even a five-year period, but some of these other strategies like the capital avalanche strategy is a long-term play and I, I can I can let it play out. I'm okay if, if there are years where I, I don't earn interest because in the other years it, it makes up for it. Whereas in the, on the investment optimizer, if I'm using that money, like I put that money in, I take loans against it, I'm, 
I'm actively moving money in and out of the policy in extreme market conditions, I don't want to have to worry about what's going to happen if I have not even just a year, but multiple years in a row where, where I'm not earning interest in, in my foundation piece. Whereas on the whole life side, it's just going to do that. It has, has guaranteed interest rate. It has that dividend we talked about. So we just know what it's going to do. That's why we prefer it because we can use it. We can loan against it. We don't even have to worry about or think about what it's doing in the background because it just, it just does what it does. Okay, Rod, but someone might be listening who's like, who knows this fairly well and saying, well, the, there's no downside in IUL. It's it's blocked, right? So like my mm-hmm. worst case scenario is zero. So why does that matter? Yeah, and and admittedly, it would take in a really extreme situation to to make it where it really would matter. But let's just play it out. So let's say that there were a few years in a row where the market was struggling. And simultaneously, whatever investment I was, I, I've put my money in, the cash flow stops as well. Mm, yeah. So I'm not making ma- payments toward my loan. I'm not earning interest on my cash value, but but I have interest that's accruing inside my loan. Then all of a sudden, I could become upside down again. Admittedly, extreme yep. situation would cause that. But you know, we've we've seen crazy things. Yeah. So, so if you have a uh, if your policy is fully loaned out and we're having, like you said, low in or no interest rate, no interest mm-hmm. gains multiple years in a row, then that would hurt, right? It would be challenging. Yeah. Okay. So that's fair. And obviously in whole life, we don't have to worry about that because again, we have our guarantees. Uh, we're going to talk about those here in just a minute. Okay. So that's the debate. IUL versus whole life. The, the reality is, is for someone that is willing that is comfortable understands and is willing to take those risks then i think it's totally fine to use the investment optimizer strategy with iul again just knowing that there is a little bit more at risk and and i would say the next place is you want to make sure that you have cash on hand if you need to come out of pocket yeah right? and, and we have clients who have done that they've looked at both sure. understood it decide hey i'm, I'm going to go the iul route although i will say this they're more cautious about taking their loans. I mean, it just, and you have to be. So, so you just kind of accept that going in. Okay. Yeah. That's a good point. We don't want to skip over that. Okay. Rodney. So that's the great debate on IUL versus whole life. Now let's get into the strategy. Let's get into talking about how this whole thing works. So we have basically three parts we're going to hit on. We're going to talk about part one, which is capitalizing the opportunity fund. Part two is the flow. And then part three, this is new, Rod. Mm-hmm. The CV lock. We're going to hit on how the CV lock interacts with the rest of the investment optimizer. Okay. So let's start with part one and capitalizing the opportunity fund. So the first thing is we got to get money into the policy, right? <laughs> so it's just like it sounds. You capitalize the fund. <laughs> Weird. Wow. Okay, wow. Well, Rod, here's a question. Where's the money coming from? Yeah. Okay. The reason this is a thing is because it's not just as easy as like with the savings account, I just put money in there if I want to, and I take the money out if I want to, right? The reason this is a thing is I have to set up a, a life insurance policy and I have to build the parameters through which I'm I'm putting money in, right? And understand what's happening with, with the cash when it gets there, uh, costs that come in and, and that kind of thing. Well, and if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Like, like it's an account that comes with several different benefits, but mm-hmm. in order to accomplish those, we have to work within the parameters that both the life insurance company and the IRS have allowed. Yes. Okay. Talk about this. So we set up a life insurance policy. You, you, you actually put an application in with an insurance company, same as you would for a term policy or anything else. Uh, we go through that underwriting process with the company to get an approval and then we're ready to, to get started. So, then the next question is, well, how do we build the policy? How do we set it up to do this? Because I've heard that whole life requires that you put money in forever mm-hmm. and that you're locked into the whatever number you pick, you have to put money in whatever that dollar amount is every year. So let's just address that because I talked earlier about the structure is critical with the way that we structure these, those two statements that I just made are not true. In other words, I can pick my number like someone would come to us and say, hey, I want to put in 100000 a year because those are the dollars that I'm putting in for my investing. Right. In other words, when I'm 
when I'm thinking about what numbers make sense, if I like the investment optimizer, I want to build that extra layer of profitability, then every dollar I'm going to end up putting into investments, I want to put into my policy first. Yeah, so that's also well, you just addressed an important issue. So the, the issue I'm thinking of is how do I determine how much money I put in this thing, right? Yeah. And, and you just address it. Well, if you're if you're utilizing cash flow investment opportunities, then it just makes sense when you understand the math to run it through the investment optimizer first. And now it just becomes a really simple A plus B equals C. This is how much I put into my investments and therefore this is how much I'm going to put into the policy here. Yep. Okay. But that's one part, but how do we get to this next piece? We call it the funding range, right? Mm -hmm. And those are the parameters that you're talking about. So talk a little bit more about not just the side for how much a person might think about what they're going to put in, but now we've got to think through how that interacts with the actual parameters that the policy provides for us. Yes. Okay. So I used a minute ago the example of someone wants to put a hundred thousand a year in. Yeah, kind of that, an average normal case with that we would. Yeah, and that may be like the target number that 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 person wants to put because that's what they set aside for investing. And so when we do that, we'll build it where that's the upper end of the of the funding range. But in that case, the the, the range is basically anywhere between twenty five thousand as a minimum up to a hundred thousand a year as a max, and that ratio holds true if it was two hundred thousand then 50 would be the minimum and 200 is the max. So basically 25% of the max is whatever the min is would, would kind of dictate what the minimum will be. Yeah. And we have people all over the board on that, right? We have people that are putting a million dollars a year and then we have people who are putting, you know, 20 or $30,000 a year. So yeah. it doesn't matter like what that number is. The ratio holds true. And the reason Rod kind of getting off on a little tangent here. So don't, don't let me get too far. It's the deep dive. But the reason it is a deep dive, the reason it's doing that is because we're funding the policy way over and above what it would actually require. So mm -hmm. every single year we fund basically four, four or more years worth in one premium, right? Yeah. We always tell people our rule of thumb is once you've funded it at least 12 years of base premium, which is your base policy that that point you're pretty well good to go right yeah you can just let the policy ride if you want now we're going to talk about why most people don't ever let the policy ride they just keep pushing it mm -hmm. but it's important to know that that freedom exists because back to that that point that you're getting getting at before it's scary to get into a policy if i think okay i'm committing to a hundred thousand dollars from now until the day i die yeah like, that's that doesn't feel very good right right but if I'm saying, hey, I know I need to get uh, 12, you know, let's let's call it. So 25,000 was our base premium mm -hmm. up to 100,000. I need to get 25,000 times 12. Like that's that's something I can do. Yeah, because you could do that in three years. If you put the full 100 in for three years, you're there. And then you're totally free to be able to continue to fund the policy. Mm -hmm. or you can pull back or you can do something very much in between. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge amount of flexibility. And can I just tell you, Rod, this is, was like just being able to like help people understand this principle, this concept has just made a huge, huge difference for us in the business because um, that is one of the major holdups that people have. And yeah. so it's important to know we don't have to have parameters. And by the way, you sometimes get people out here who are, teaching similar concepts that still try to play it that way. But the reality is, is if it's built the right way, there is a whole bunch of flexibility in it. So I want to recap that a little bit. Uh, again, this is the deep dive, but now I'm going to, I'm going to pull up kind of more high level that funding range. When I talked about the 25 to hundred, the 25 mm -hmm. is dictated by kind of the pure insurance portion of the policy, but then the additional 75 that makes up the flexibility is I'm just overfunding. I'm putting more money in the policy than I have to for the sake of the insurance. Which... Okay. But I feel like you need to clarify one thing, Rod. Mm -hmm. And and this is always a hard thing because what you said there was the pure insurance part of it is like the 25,000. Yeah. But that's, you've got to, you've got to dig in a layer yeah. deeper to understand what's happening in that 25,000. Okay. So uh, whole life insurance. So that's kind of when I say pure, the pure insurance part in this case, a, a pure whole life portion mm -hmm. of the policy 
it builds cash value too. So even if I was only putting in the 25,000, I would still build cash value over time. I might end up with maybe a two or 3% net return instead of the 5%. But And it would grow much more slowly. Yes. But it would still happen. Yep. And... And we'll talk about this in a minute, but they're, the costs are a little more front-end loaded. That's why it builds more slowly because more of that initial, that, that lower end of the range, the 25000 in this case, uh, goes toward costs initially. But by year three and beyond, most of it's building cash value. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay. So, Rod, we're talking about capitalizing the opportunity fund. Is there anything, any other points inside of this stage well, okay. Actually, I'm, I'm realizing we definitely need to talk about the two pieces that make our engine go. Yeah. Okay. So we actually talked a little bit about IUL and how it grows, but we have not yet dug into like more specifically, what are the components that make up that five to 6% net return that we can expect to get inside of our whole life policy? Yes. Yeah, so Properly in whole structured whole life policy. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Get that right. At its core, no matter how it's structured, once the money gets into the cash value, the way it grows is there's a guaranteed interest rate associated with it, and then it earns a dividend. The guaranteed interest rate for a long time, for 38 years, it was it was just everyone knew what it was going to be. Uh, it was 4%. Then the end of last year, there were some changes made legislatively that gave more flexibility with the insurance companies. So now the way it works is they pick a, a guaranteed rate when they build a, a product and they pick anywhere between 2% as a guaranteed rate up to three and three quarter percent. Most of the products that we're looking at is that they're at 3%. So think of it like 3% guaranteed interest plus additional growth based on dividend, which right now adds another two to 3%. So total of five to 6% as our, think of it as like the gross interest earned, which when we net it out, then we net out at, at roughly that 5% return. Okay. that's And that's helpful. So basically we're saying there's under a percent of cost inside over the long term, right? Yep. Uh, like you mentioned, there's it's front end loaded and we'll get into that. We'll, we'll talk about what that actually looks like when we get into a scenario. Um, okay. So then the dividend, Rod, let's just talk about what's driving that dividend, right? Yeah. Because um, it's nice to know that there is one and that it's coming and that like, this is what it is today, but it'd be nice to know what it was 30 years ago and what kind of factors are making that, uh, or, or are driving whether that's paying more or less. Yeah. The dividend is based on a few things. The, the profitability of the company is obviously one of those in this case, because it's a life insurance company, there's the. I call it kind of the mortality effect, depending on how much they're paying out in, in any given year of, of insurance benefit when people mm -hmm. pass away, that can have an impact. Uh, but the really the biggest factor is the kind of return that the insurance company is getting in their reserves. And when we talk about reserves, the insurance companies keep major, like enormous amounts of reserves because they have to. If I'm 40 years old, when I sign up for a life insurance policy, I could die any time. Right, so they have to be ready to pay that out. But more likely, I'm going to live 30, 40, maybe 50 years. And that insurance number is just going to get bigger as I get older. So they have to be ready to pay it out. So they keep a lot of money uh, you know, in, in kind of this large, we call it the general account, but it's out invested primarily in bonds and notes and, and things like that that are susceptible or, or sensitive to what happens with interest rates. So a shift in interest rates impacts the dividend. We kind of hit on that a little bit earlier, but the reason why dividends today are a little bit lower than they were 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, is because interest rates have been low, right? If we went back to the late eighties and looked at all the different mutual companies, they were paying somewhere in the 10 to 11% range in total when you could combine the guaranteed interest rate plus the dividend. And then that adjusted over time to the point where maybe in 2010, they were paying somewhere in the 7% range. More recently, like I said, five to six. Yeah. And that is important, right? Because especially in times like this, where inflation's so 
dramatic. Like mm-hmm. we need to know that our that not only it's not only important to know what we're getting today, we need to know that we have a vehicle that can be flexible enough to uh, move with the rates. So yeah. thinking of this is the way I've thought about it. Um, even when interest rates were next to nothing, I could still be in my policy and get five percent net return. Um, over the next little bit, I'll probably there might be a little bit of a lag just because interest rates have gone so have gone up so fast. So, for example, I may still only get five percent in my whole life policy this year, even though we've seen this drastic increase in inflation. Mm-hmm. However, we're already hearing about the interest rates rising in IULs, and certainly we'll see uh, dividends and in interest rate because of course, like you said, now the insurance company is getting stronger returns, higher interest returns on their investments. Now they then go past that back to the policyholder because it's a mutual company in the form of dividends. Okay. Rod. So we talked about capitalizing the opportunity fund. And I think that's perfect because it leads us right into the flow. So now just kind of, I'm playing this out of my mind. Um, let's just say Joe Schmo business owner. They're really excited to get going in the alternative investment space. They're putting their, they, they came up with their number. They're putting a hundred thousand dollars a year. So they're qualified for the insurance policy. It's been structured appropriately designed to maximize cash. Now I put the money into the policy. Mm-hmm. What happens next? Now you get to use it. And more specifically, let's be really specific with this because uh, there are apparently there are voices out there that make people feel like they have to wait a couple of years before they use it. That's not the case. The kind of companies we're using, and some it depends on the company itself, but for the most part, it's 30 days later. You put the money in and within yeah. 30 days, you can start using the uh, the loans against it to go and, and invest. And let's be, let me just clarify a little bit uh, as far as how the, my capitalizing of the, of the policy converts into the cash value. Okay. So in, in this example, the hundred thousand dollars goes in, in year one, that's going to convert into about 75 to 80% or 75 to 80,000 of actual cash value. Mm, okay. This is important and we have to be super transparent about this. This is where life insurance is a pain for us, and it is a pain for anybody. Instead of just having costs happen equally throughout a, the life of the policy, yeah. they front-end load them because of the cost to start it up and all those different things. Okay, yep. so that means that in that first year, even with my policy structured perfectly, I'm I'm going to have seventy-five to eighty thousand of my hundred thousand. The other hmm. part went to cost. That's the pain point. And can I just tell you, if if the insurance companies would be uh, a little bit nicer to us and just do it more like they could even raise the costs, Rod. And they could just raise the co- raise the costs. But if but that front end load, that's just a pain point. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. I'm joking. I would much rather have the costs, even if they're front end loaded, have them be much lower over time. And that's the way the life insurance works. But this is important. So. If this didn't exist, Rod, then virtually every person we talk to would be using the investment optimizer. So the reason I point that out is just because it's important to realize that I'm having to play at least the medium term game, but mm-hmm. the medium to long term game, right? And we're going to show what that looks like. But if I only did it for two or three years, I'd lose money on the deal. If I yeah. if I do it over 20 years, I'm going to gain in a really big way. Right. I think of it like startup costs that you would have if you're buying a piece of real estate or if you're starting up a business. Yep. You kind of take that on initially, realizing that in the long run, you're just going to end up with a lot more value. It's kind of the the price to to play kind of thing. So, but let's be, let's kind of clarify what happens after that, because in the year two, we put another hundred thousand in and in that year, 85 to 88% of the money lands in the cash value. As I move forward from there, year three onward, I put another hundred thousand in, and my cash value grows by a hundred or more. It just gets better because of the compounding growth inside of the account, and because our costs are a lot lower after those first couple of years. Okay, so Rod, we we've got to get into the nuts and bolts as to why investing through the policy actually works. So we've talked yeah. about the benefit, uh, and we've hit on the benefit of it replacing the opportunity fund. 
Yeah. So now I'm getting a better interest rate than I would be in my savings account. That's a big deal with, with any money that's there, any money that's on the sideline. But that's not the only thing that's impacting how I'm able to generate a return. And so to get in this next point, we need to talk about the difference between compound and simple interest and how that plays out in our policy. Yeah, absolutely. So as we talked about earlier, when when we're taking that money to go and invest, I'm not actually removing money out of my account, right? I'm taking a loan. In this case, let's say I have the 75,000 in my cash value. I want to take a $50,000 to go and invest in a syndication or something. So I'm actually taking a $50,000 loan against my account. That money comes to me from the general account of the insurance company. My full hundred third, in this case, the 75, 80,000 that's, that's there continues to grow and compound. And I take the 50,000, I invest it in the syndication. It creates some maybe annual distribution or something that I flow back as I receive that money. I put it back into my policy that covers the interest, maybe even some of the, some of the principal. And that creates the flow, right? Well, as I'm doing that, because my money stayed there and continues to grow, it's growing at a compounding rate, hmm. right? Unaltered, it just continues to, to grow. The, as I'm flowing the money back in on the loan side, I pay the interest that's due on the loan. But as I do that, I'm paying simple interest. And really, Rod, it's by doing that, I'm paying simple interest. Right, yes, good point. This is an important point. And, and the only reason I bring this up is because I've heard some voices suggest that oh, when you're doing this, it's not simple interest. Well, it absolutely is to the extent that you pay off your interest in the year. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely a simple interest versus compound interest arbitrage. Yes. I just wanted to clarify. Yep. And I think a lot of people understand the difference between compound and simple. In this case, it's simple on a decreasing value as I'm paying down the loan principal as well. And... Uh, in one of the webinars that you can find on our website, uh, moneyinsightsgroup.com, uh, you, you'll see a, an example that we show where we take a $100,000 loan, amortize the payback of that over, I think it was 20 years. By the end of the 20 years, on the loan side, we would have paid about $60,000 in interest. Okay. At the same time, in our policy, we have that 100000 that's staying there and continuing to compound and grow. And even using the exact same interest rate. In other words, I'm paying 5% on my loan. I'm earning 5% inside of my cash value. You would think that's a wash, right? I, I'm paying exactly how much as much as I'm earning. In reality, because it's simple versus compound on my cash value side, I've earned $165,000 of interest. So there's a $105,000 difference between interest paid and interest earned in that example. Can I just say, Rod, like I hear this and I talk about it all the time, but like when I really take a step back and think about it, it's pretty wild, right? Yeah. That is not, it's not just a little difference. It's not like, okay, by, you know, generating five and, and paying five on this compound versus simple over that 20 years, I made an extra couple grand. Like it's a significant amount of money. And of course, math tells us that when I have more money working in this way, that number becomes even greater. And yeah. so we're going to get into this example that we show. Uh, the Specifically, I'm thinking about the example you've played out with the 100000 going in for 20 years. And, and anyway, we'll talk about that in a second. But I just want to emphasize how big of a deal this is. So, and this is a teaser, what happens, Rod, if I can get five and only pay three or four? Ooh. Mm, yeah, it's a big that's deal. A good teaser. Yep. Yeah, and but I think it's important to realize that I'm we're using an isolated like single loan uh, investment example. But what happens is as as I am paying down that loan, I think of it like I'm replenishing my opportunity fund. I'm I'm putting capital back that can then be used to go back out and invest in something else. So over time. I'm going to have multiple things I'm investing in, multiple streams of income, but I'm flowing all of that back through the policy to replenish the opportunity fund to go back out and then invest in something again. And by doing that, Rod, we are fulfilling the cycle, right? Yeah. We're moving it through. So once I've done that, 
all I have to do is do it again and again and again. Yep. And obviously, the more I do it, I create velocity, I create more value, and the whole concept continues to build on itself. Right. Okay, Rod. So we've talked about part one, which is capitalizing. Right. We talked about part two, which is the flow. But before I move on, is there anything else inside the flow that we need to hit on before we move to part three, which we're calling CV lock? Uh, I do want to hit on one last thing on okay. the flow because we're often asked how, like, who dictates the terms of the payback on the loan? Uh, is the insurance yes, company going to tell me how I have to pay it back? And the answer is it's all about where the money is. The money that is acting as collateral is sitting there with the insurance company in my account. Um, but they know that if I ever like cashed out my policy and wanted to walk away, great, they're going to take from my cash value to pay off the loan first and then give me what's left. Or if I die while I have a loan outstanding, the death benefit's going to pay out, but they're going to take and pay off that loan first. So because of those things, they give me complete freedom on how I pay that loan back. They're going to send me a bill for the interest once a year at my policy anniversary, but that's it. They're never going to dictate how I pay it back. So taking that, then then what I do is the thing that makes the most sense to me, I take that money, I've invested it, it's creating some sort of cash flow or, or some sort of return coming back to me. The thing that makes sense is to pay the loan back in, in the way that I receive the cash. In other words, I get a distribution or I have a monthly rental income or whatever. As that money comes to me, I'll just flow it back into the policy. And that's that, and that's perfect advice, right? So when we talk to people, that's the advice that we give. It just yeah. It just makes sense and it works. But maybe the point there is even more so that you decide what the payback looks like. Yeah. Right. There's yeah. there's really good logical ways to do it. But at the end of the day, you do. And the reason I emphasize that is just because let's say theoretically that I put together a payback uh, a payback plan. Well, if for some reason my payback plan blows up mm -hmm. and it has to, I have to redo it, it has to be changed up in some dramatic fashion. Well, it's not like a regular loan where now my credit's going to be messed up, right? Yeah. Because of this whole insurance company feels safe, they have the collateral, there's no reason to even mess with that kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. it, it is important. So we determine what the loans uh, look like, how we pay them back and everything else. And Rod just gave us a really logical way to look at it. Okay, Rod, so we talked, uh, we talked about the flow. The next piece that we want to hit on is new to our investment optimizer, Deep Dive. Mm -hmm. And it is the CV lock, which stands for cash value line of credit. So maybe Rod, start with what the cash value line of credit is, uh, and then we'll jump into how it works and ultimately how it interacts with the investment optimizer to make it even better. Yeah. Cash value line of credit is basically there are banks out there who understand what a life insurance policy is, how it works, so they're willing to offer a line of credit using your cash value as collateral for that. Sounds really familiar, right? This is what we've been talking about with the insurance company offering basically a line of credit using your cash value as collateral. Well, in this case, with the bank, well, so, so the flow would be the same, going back mm -hmm. to, to kind of the, the second piece. I'm When I'm ready to go invest, I take the money through the loan, go out and invest, flow that money back towards the loan. In this case... If I'm using the, the CV lock, I'm just flowing that money through my line of credit with the bank instead of the loan that I got from the insurance company. Okay, Rod. So that's a great uh, definition or, or gives us a good idea of the basis for what uh, CV lock is. Now let's move into why uh, someone would do it. How does it interact with the investment optimizer? Yeah. Uh, again, the flow is the same, but in this case, the reason someone might do it is because we can get a better interest rate on the loan. Okay, so remember that teaser? Remember when mm -hmm. I said, what if you could still get five and only pay three or four? And by the way, over the last few years, people using a cash value line of credit have absolutely been doing that. They've been yeah. earning five or more and paying something like three. So what does that do for someone though? In in that example I gave of the com comparing compounding interest versus simple, we talked about how in the policy, we earned 165,000 of interest over that 20 year time period on that 100,000 earning 5% while paying 60,000 in interest 
uh, through the, the loan side, right? If instead of a 5% loan rate, we were at a 3% rate, you would have only paid 34,000. Hmm. So like so, half of the interest or something like that. Yeah, a little, a little more, but and in the long run, I mean that, so it turns your $105,000 difference into $131,000 of difference. The point is, is that it's a way to take it up a notch, right? Yeah. And obviously that's what we're doing. We're looking for financial arbitrage options and it doesn't increase our risk. It, it really is just one extra step that increases money. And if you're looking as a high income earner for ways to capitalize on basically high income hacks, right? Like that's what we're mm -hmm. showing is, mm -hmm. is ways to just do a little bit better. And in this situation, depending on how interest rates are playing out, the CV law can be a really great way to uh, take it up a notch. But because it's the deep dive rod, why don't you just take a minute and talk about situations where the CV lock does make sense, but let's make sure that we're really clear because it doesn't always make sense. So sure. let's, let's hit on when it's not such a good idea. Yeah. Interest rates make the difference. As interest rates rise, that'll get to a point where it would be better to carry the policy loan with the insurance company instead of using the CV lock. So, and the beauty is that you can switch back and forth between the two pretty seamlessly. In other words, if I have a loan outstanding with the with my policy currently, and, and you're listening to this, and you're like, well, maybe I want to go check out a CV lock. You go apply for your line of credit with the bank. They approve it. First thing they're going to do is pay off the loan with the insurance company. Now you're carrying the loan with the, the new line of credit. But the reverse can happen as well. If I get to a place where interest rates get to a point based on what I'm earning in my, in my dividend and or what the insurance company is offering for an interest rate, makes more sense to switch it back to the insurance company. Well, again, same thing can happen. I close out the line of credit, uh, take a loan from my insurance policy to pay out, pay that off. Now I just have moved the, the loan back into my insurance policy with, with the insurance company. Okay, Rod, is there anything else on the CV lock point that we need to hit on? We have people right now who are wondering, like I have a CV lock, when does it make sense to, to move it back? Yeah. And part, of that, part of that depends on what company you're with, direct recognition versus non-direct. I mean, this probably isn't the, the place to get into all of those details. Uh, but the point is that if you just look at what are you earning in your dividend currently with your insurance company, what is the interest rate that they're offering with the insurance company compared with what's happening with the, with the line of credit, then, then you can, you can kind of figure out your trigger point. If the interest rates get to X, then I'll, I'll move it back. But maybe it would also be helpful to help people understand how the bank calculates the interest rate that they're mm, paying versus yeah, how the insurance company idea. does. With virtually all insurance companies, they're basing the loan rate on a Moody's bond index. Mm -hmm. As that bond index changes, what they'll do is they'll take the previous two or three month average on that index and that dictates how, how much interest on the, on the policy loan with the floor. Most of the companies have been at their floor for a long time. Uh, mostly basically 5%, four and three quarter percent, et cetera. But uh, as interest rates are rising, they'll keep their eye on that Moody's bond index and, and adjust accordingly. On the line of credit side with the bank, most of them are, are going based off of prime minus. So depending how much volume you have uh, up to 250,000, it's prime minus a half point between 250 and a million dollars. It's prime minus 1%. And above a million, it's prime minus one and a quarter. That's that's a pretty common kind of thing. So uh, that that's, but it's a variable rate loan based on what's happening with prime. Okay, Rod. So before we get into what we call phase two, um, yeah. I want to, I'm going to ask you if you can play out in just in your words, play out the example that we often show people that that's a that's a putting $100,000 in for 20 years. And anyway, help people understand kind of the full cycle. If they yeah. were doing this based on what we've been seeing over the last five years or so, what does this look like? What's the advantage of doing it versus not? Yeah, okay. So we have this side by side. In other words, we, we started out with the comparison between someone using their savings account as opposed to using the investment optimizer. So if we're telling you it's better, 
Well, let's let's see how it's. <laughs> You've got to show right? it out. Yeah, yeah. Prove yeah. it, Rod. Prove it's better. So in this example, we said, well, what if someone is setting aside a hundred thousand dollars a year for five years for investing, mm-hmm. and they either put it in their savings account on the right hand side or put it in the investment optimizer on the left hand side? In the first year, as we as you would expect. They have the full hundred thousand from their savings account to go out and invest. In this case, we said, "Let what if they just put it in a syndication?" Mm-hmm. Whereas on the on the investment optimizer side, they had seventy four thousand dollars. Okay, so again, totally recognizing all those differences in terms of these costs that we take on with the with the policy as a starting point. But as you can imagine, as we go on over time, because we're earning that underlying growth inside of our policy. And that's tax free. I don't have to. I'm not losing any of that growth to, to paying taxes. Then I end up getting being in a better place. And essentially, what we do in in this example is we show having invested that money, creating some cash flow, capturing that cash flow inside of the 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 plan, right inside of the investment optimizer, and or on the right hand side inside of the savings account. And and then recycling that, putting that back into additional investments. Every five years, we go out and buy a piece of property, an ever-increasing size of property because of all this growth that we're creating inside of what we're doing. And our assumption is as we go and buy those properties that we are generating a 15% return, cash flow off out of the property, and we're assuming that the property uh, value increases at 5% per year, just that appreciation on the value. And, and then we just kind of play that out over over 20 years, continually cycling that money back through the system, going out and investing in a new property every five years. Well, at the end of the, of the 20 years, on the savings account side, we turned that 500000 into a little over $20 million. Just by doing investing in, in multifamily real estate, et cetera, the way that a lot of our clients are doing right now. Okay. Absolutely. Yep. On the investment optimizer side, we turned that five hundred thousand into a little over twenty-two million. So, in other words, we created a little more than a two million dollar difference in value to that person by using the investment optimizer to, to flow all that money through those investments. To me, that's huge, right? Again, everything else is the same. Yeah, we just in place of the savings account. We put the properly structured whole life policy that we now run our investments through. And yep. just doing that had a over 10% difference. And, and this doesn't even play out like if someone was using being more, um, what's the right word, being more enthusiastic about it and, and using the CV lock and doing like all the little pieces to maximize yeah. it, but just at its core created an extra $2 million. And really that's why we love it because it helps people make more money, create more net worth in real dollars and cents than if they weren't doing it. Yep. Okay, Rodney, before we go, Mm -hmm. we've got to hit on what we think is a really exciting part of the investment optimizer. And it's the part that we call phase two. And it really is a massive extra benefit. But talk a little bit about what phase two is and why we think this is another uh, incredible feature that people just need to be aware of. Yeah, we'll often have people who will say, okay, great, I I built all this extra value into my life insurance policy. Then what? Do I have to die for anybody to get any benefit from it? (laughs) Uh, The answer is no. Uh, Life insurance actually is a really good way to create tax-free income in retirement. People will talk about a LERP, life insurance retirement plan. There are different forms of that out there, right? Yes, And, and by the way, there's books written about it and that kind of thing. And and it is common specifically in that high income space because of yeah. the tax advantages that naturally exist within it. Well, one of the nice benefits that we're getting into is you're basically creating a powerful LERP in this mm-hmm. case that's being funded at a really high level because it's it's being funded by your investments, right? So you're now yeah. using your investments to fund this additional phase or a, a significant retirement income stream. So what that looks like is you get to a place where you're, we, we always hesitate to use the word retirement around here because a lot yeah. of people don't feel about the same way as most Americans do. But let's just say you're investing, but you're slowing down in your investments, right? You don't have to, you don't want to have to continue to 
to create yeah. new opportunities and and all of that. So what that looks like is now you just basically start to live off of more of those cash streams that you've created. And this can just become another one of those. The The cash is there. You have access to it. It's it's liquid still, right? Um, but instead of using loans to go out and invest, we're actually tapping into that value to live off of, to add another stream of tax-free income in retirement. Okay, Rod, now that we have covered phase two, I'm just going to do a very quick recap of the investment optimizer. Okay. So we talked about why the investment optimizer exists and we know what the reason is talk to, to solve the problem of lazy money sitting on the sideline. We talked about why we prefer whole life to IUL inside the investment optimizer. Then we went through the strategy part one, capitalizing the opportunity fund part two, it's just how we use it. We call it the flow. And then we added part three, which was the cash value line of credit. And finally, hit on a massive extra benefit that is the income. We call it a retirement benefit, but but maybe we should change that name. Okay, well, <laughs> this has been really fun. Uh, Rod, thanks so much for all of your work on it. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the Money Insights Podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Money Insights Podcast. To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth-building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.